If I was honest, Jody, I really am angry because it's not fair. Because it often feels like we're the ones, excuse my language, who get fucked. And it's like our girls get fucked. And like rich people are getting richer. And people who need services and people who are trying to provide those services are barely hanging on. And I'm angry about that. Welcome to Joyful Sundays, a podcast delivering weekly insights, inspiration, and tools to live a more conscious, connected, and intentionally meaningful life. Join us as we go into the minds of some of the world's most inspiring leaders to discover the keys to unlocking your best self. In the midst of a global pandemic, there has never been a more important time to reflect on how we want to emerge, what we value, who we are at our cores, and how we want to reflect those North Star values in the lives we build post a global crisis. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. When I decided to launch this podcast, Resh Mesajani was the very first person that came to mind as someone I'd want to have as my guest. Reshma, not only are you a fantastic human being and friend, but you're also a visionary leader, incredible life partner to your husband, Nihal, mom to your two kids, and dog mom to Stanley. For those of you who don't know, Rashma is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Rashma has worked tirelessly to help close the gender gap by inspiring and educating young women to pursue careers in STEM. Rashma models Brave Not Perfect every day. She not only ran for office, but she has written two books and has an incredible TED Talk, which has had over 4 million views on YouTube. Her most recent book, Brave Not Perfect, will inspire you to pursue anything you dream. Before we get started, I just want to thank you so much, Reshma, for how generously you have showed up for me. You were one of the first people to reach out to me after I made the announcement that Move the Dial had to pause operations. You can't know how much that small act of you going out of your way to support me meant. Almost as much as you being here with me today. I am so excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for being here. I understand or empathize a lot of what's going on. So I'm, I'm excited that you're launching this podcast and you know, you're a really powerful and important voice in this moment. So I'm glad that you're continuing to use it. Well, thank you for that. And before we get into some of the questions I, I want to start with around your role as a leader right now, I'd love to ask you, how are you and your husband and your nine-week-old baby and your five-year-old son and your puppy Stanley feeling this week now that we're <laughs> several months into navigating this pandemic? I think it's rough. I want to start off by saying I am very grateful. You know, we had a baby that was born January 28th via surrogate. And we were able to be there because it was like right when Corona was starting to kind of hit. And so we were able to be in the delivery room. I was able to, you know, going from Kansas to Chicago, then to New York, you know, eventually able to bring Cy home and, and he's healthy. And, you know, my five-year-old sons couldn't be happier in quarantine. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, I'm incredibly grateful, but I was supposed to be on maternity leave right now. And when a global pandemic hits and you run a girls nonprofit where you depend on charitable giving and you have hundreds of thousands of girls that you have to serve, you don't get to take maternity leave. 
and you got to be on and I need to lead. And, you know, it was definitely a challenge. At the same time, I know as crazy as it sounds, I do feel like these are the kinds of moments where I personally thrive. I talk a lot about failure, right? I talk a lot about having my back against the wall. I've worked on building my bravery muscle and my resilience muscle. And so in, in that sense, like I think from an organizational perspective and a movement perspective, like I do feel like I am ready for this moment and I thrive in moments like this, but it's hard. Thank you for sharing that so authentically. And actually the reason I wanted to have you on my podcast first was because of your you know, incredible ability to thrive under a crisis and the resiliency muscle that as I read your book, you know, sort of really started to understand and know better about you that you've been training your entire life, essentially to be prepared for this. So I'm so delighted to really dig into that and share some of you know how you do that. Because I think so many of us are, you know, starving for not only inspiration and mindset, but also like the actual practical ways to move ourselves to that mindset and to be able to practice that muscle. So let's go back to how you started Girls Who Code. For those that don't know about Girls Who Code, I'd love to hear a little bit about the origin story and some of the programs that you've developed in the US and Canada, the UK and India, and the girls you serve globally. I mean, I always say I'm like a weird person to have started Girls Who Code because I'm not a coder. Like I wasn't a woman in tech. I was a lawyer, an activist. I had run for office in 2010. And that's when like tech in many ways, like, you know, recent digital revolution was just picking up, right? Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, all these companies were coming up and people were really using social media in a very kind of everyday powerful way. And when I looked at these companies, I didn't see women. And when I looked into the classrooms that were developing the future Mark Zuckerberg's or Steve Jobs, I didn't see women and I didn't understand it. And so when I lost my race uh, so spectacularly, it was clear to me, I want to make a difference. I'm not going to go back to the private sector. I'm already broke, right? I'm already made that big leap and failure didn't break me. Like, what's the one thing I saw that I really feel like I can make a difference on. And it was this issue. It was about girls and coding. And it was clear to me that we needed to kind of build a pipeline of talent and we needed to talk to girls and teach girls computer science in a very different way. And that's where Girls Who Code started. And I didn't intend to build a nonprofit. I didn't intend to build a movement. I intended to just build one program you know, with 20 girls in a friend's conference room and feed them pizza and give them 50 bucks to like spend the summer with me. I always say, I think sometimes people get afraid to do things because the vision is almost too big to like put our feet in. You actually in some ways should start small. I do think that we are in a transformational moment and everybody's kind of risk index should actually increase right now. And so it is a moment where more women like you and I can start their social ventures, but we have to make sure that they have the bravery and the courage and the knowledge that like, you don't have to be an expert. Like you don't have to have everything figured out. That's not what it's about. It's about passion. Yes. And I don't know if you had this experience, but I'm also a lawyer by background, which is funny. And I remember after my first Move the Dial event, which similarly was meant to be a small event for 30 people, ended up becoming something, you know, much larger, a thousand people showed up. I put an op-ed in the paper and people looked at me and said, like, what business do you have starting a global movement to advance women in tech? Like you're a lawyer who's never been in tech for 20 years. 
And I remember I literally was so scared in that moment that I stayed in my bed for a few days and almost never took another step. You know, I don't know if you had that experience where anyone was questioning you or where you were questioning yourself before you took the next step. I'm super curious, like, how did you take the next step from the small event into enlarging your vision and and finding the bravery muscle to take that big step? When I have an idea about something, what I normally do is like write a couple paragraphs on paper And then I like go get meetings and have conversations with people who I think are smart or have an interesting perspective. And so when I had the idea of Girls Who Code, as I started fleshing it out, I just started meeting with people. And there was one guy, there's always one guy who's like, that's a stupid idea. Like that won't ever work. And I remember walking out and be like, that's why this is such a great idea. Because he thinks it's a stupid idea. And I tell people that all the time. It's like... Sometimes you need someone to really tell you that for you to then like look inside your heart and your soul and say, no, I actually, I have a gut feeling about this often is like your gut, right? Which was what I'm sure happened with you with move the dial. You're like, there is a void here. There is a problem that needs to be solved. And I feel passionately about it. And so I'm going to solve it. And I think men understand this. Men are constantly creating companies that they know nothing about, that they're not experts in. But they're like, yo, this is a problem. I have an idea about this. And it's passion or interest or intellectual curiosity that is really your prerequisite and not experience. I love that. And I think that's such an important message for our listeners to hear today that the whole topic of imposter syndrome and, you know, we could spend hours on that. I'll put it in the parking lot. But this moment, the lesson here is really, you know, pushing through that moment when somebody doubts you or you even doubt yourself. I'll never forget the first seed I had of Move the Dial when I was on a trip to Israel. I was in Ramallah and I was actually hearing a woman entrepreneur present her online lingerie delivery business to a room full of mostly men. I mean, I was one of the very few women on the trip and I was ferociously writing notes on a hard copy piece of paper. And then I sent an email to a bunch of the guys on the trip and one of them wrote back, I'll help you when you write shorter emails. And that kind of fueled me like, oh yeah, watch me. For a lot of women, which is why I think it's so important to build your bravery muscle, we don't like people not liking us or we're often protected from rejection and failure. And so when we get that email of like write shorter emails, it feels personal and we shrink ourselves. And I think if you get in the practice of hearing critical feedback, I think that when you get that email, you're able to have the courage to like build resiliency and it not build insecurity. And I think that that's just how we need to be raising our girls and how we need to be retraining women. I couldn't agree more with that. And so tell me about, you had your first event. What was that next sort of phase of when you took it from that first event to starting to recognize that that need was something that you could fill and scale? Like our first summer program was so powerful. And there was this exact moment where I had friends of mine from the New York Immigration Coalition come in and talk about the state of undocumented students. And the task was for my girls to say, okay, if I was going to build something to solve that, what would it look like? And I remember just sitting in that room, just being like blown away and saying, this is it. Like if I believe that girls are change makers, then technology will actually help them solve the problems and change the world. And it was once I had that feeling, I was like, okay, we're going to do this. 
And then I just, you know, I arbitrarily basically said, I want to grow at 300% every year. And so I would just keep moving the goalpost and then moving and building my team along with me. What also happened at that moment was I was running again for public advocate, literally launched these two things at the exact same time. And my goal in being public advocate was to get computer science in every classroom. I lose that race and I say, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to get computer science in every classroom in the country then. And so again, it just emboldened me and I doubled down to go in and, you know, be the chief executive of this idea that I had and to run it. And so for those next couple of years, I really just put my head down and just built. I've been watching this Michael Jordan documentary, Last Dance, and for a lot of his teammates, they didn't like him. They thought he was mean. They thought he was like just too tough. And he really realized that part of leadership is not necessarily being liked, but getting people to follow you, getting people to basically move along the vision that you so deeply believe in and make them better. And I definitely feel like those first couple of years were hard because everybody was telling me to slow down. And everybody told me that my eyes were too big. And everybody told me that, you know, you can't build and you can't do that. And I just kept setting these goals and just pushing people along. But I think that pushing is so remarkable, Rashma, and very unique, just to point that out, because I think there's a a real insight there and lesson. You have an ability not only to sort of create a bold and growing vision and bring people along and galvanize, but also your execution focus and your execution ability. Talk to our listeners about what that looks like for you in terms of how you drive that hard and literally what are the systems you use to keep pushing forward when most people can't or don't, or are not brave enough to do that? It's about hiring people who are smarter than me. And I look at my team, I look at my COO, my CMO, my, you know, CFO, and they're just incredible leaders and they're excellent at execution. And they allow me to be the visionary and have, you know, a perspective on how I think things should be done. And there was a moment where I was picking every t-shirt and deciding what the color was and, you know what I mean, what the website should look like. And then there was a moment where I was like, I'm not the best person to actually be doing this. And I'm getting in my own way. And what my gift is, is to see where the world is going and to come back to the team and say, look, I think we need to do this. How can we do it? And sort of weave together the orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that I'm watching a lot of leaders. They have a hard time with this. Like they have a hard time hiring great people because they're insecure. And I've seen this with a lot of male leaders that I've worked for. It's interesting you say that literally in my mind, I was thinking, you know, definitely it is a a leadership trait that I think women are better at than men in terms of knowing our own strengths and knowing the lanes that actually we're not very good at. Like I'm a terrible COO. So when I was like in that role and CEO, there was problems, you know, I'm not the best person at that job. I never should be that person. And your ability to bring people around you that complement your skills and really get out of the way not letting go, which is very hard to do when you grow a baby. Oh, it's my child. Yeah, it is hard to let go in many ways. Like you want to build something, it has to be bigger than you. Yes. And then being able to build the movement into something bigger than you is, you know, a very hard thing. And you've done, honestly, the most remarkable job. I'm having a moment right now reflecting on when I first was building Move the Dial and I saw you as this incredible beacon of, you know, that is my role model. You are my example 
of what can be possible and sort of this concept of actually working together, working with you, all of the organizations that are trying to advance, you know, women in this way was a dream once upon a time. I'll never forget the moment and the day I had a conversation with my girlfriend about you and what you were doing for the world. So it's just, it's the most incredible full circle to be sitting here reflecting with you. You in your heart as the founder, the creator of this vision, what gives you the greatest joy when you reflect on these many years of labor, of love and work? I mean, the girls, like the girls are my biggest pride. Just this morning, there's like a team in Wyoming that like won an award. There's a girl that's building an app to like healthcare workers are on the front lines. I mean, just literally pages and pages of like stuff that my girls and our clubs and people are doing in this moment. And so it's just the congressional loss, my public advocate loss was so hard because all I wanted to do was make a difference. Like all I wanted to do was be a public servant. And my girls remind me that like, even though I didn't make it to Congress and I didn't get to be quote, the change maker and the vision that I thought I was going to be like, they are. So my loss was like the greatest thing that ever happened to my desire to want to make change because they're making change. And I feel very blessed that I get to see that and and feel that way. It's amazing because, you know, the impact that you've had as a different kind of public servant, honestly, from where I sit, it's beyond what we will see in this lifetime. And, And in particular, you know, I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, I'm blown away by the extreme intentionality you and your team clearly brought to building Girls Who Code as a highly inclusive community that seems to primarily, you know, really focus on the needs of the most marginalized girls. And that is a very hard thing to do. Like I know from trying, I probably spent 80% of my own personal energy on that in our own programming through Move the Dial. How did you do that? Because, you know, I know that there's so many people community building and trying to serve in a truly inclusive fashion that really don't know how. You know, I think one of the things that I had decided early on was that I didn't want to be one or the other. So I didn't want to be an organization that was agnostic towards underserved girls. And I didn't want to be an organization that was only serving underserved girls. And the reason why I felt that way was that that first summer program that we did was a mix of girls who were privileged and girls who were underserved. It was gay girls, straight girls, trans, you know, like it was black, white, brown, Asian. And there was something powerful about seeing a group of girls get together in a time where our schools are so segregated, our lives are so segregated, that I thought that there was a deeper opportunity to make this change. And so what we basically did from the very beginning was have metrics. Every classroom would have, you know, half black and Latina, half white and Asian. Every time we did a recruitment plan, our goal was to get to half underserved girls, half girls, you know, under Title I. When we saw the, you know, epidemic happening across the country in rural areas, we said, okay, what can we basically do to provide coding to kids in areas in like Kansas or Wyoming? And we were moving you know, away from globalization and into these kind of very tightly run nation states where we weren't thinking about one another. You know, my parents came here as refugees and suddenly I was living in a country that was trying to build walls around it. So we said, you know what? We're going to Jordan. We're going to the UK. We're going to India. We're going to Canada. And so we have many ways been a reflection of like the world that we want to see. And we have been intentional about building it. 
underline that last sentence, that intentionality, not just good intentions, which is one of the chapters in my book, you know, is something that you modeled early days. The concept of making the commitment, intentionally seeking and not stopping until you achieved your metrics. Like people think sometimes you can't, where are the girls? Like they're there. You have to go further to look for them. And that is a step that most organizations sort of don't understand or seem to skip. Yeah. It's really interesting. We're living in this moment where it's almost like inclusivity and diversity has like become a dirty word, right? There's all these lawsuits from white men who feel like their rights are being violated when the numbers are so clear. So I actually think that there's not a lot of bravery from companies right now to say, you know what? Like, no, like we want to get to parity on gender. We want to get to parity in terms of race and socioeconomic status. And so like this lack of bravery is really frightening, especially in this moment right now where you see that the folks that are being the most affected by COVID are poor people, are people of color, are women who are the essential workers. And so we almost need to double down, right, on our commitment to diversity right now and not back away from it. I'm so happy you said that because that is what keeps me up at night, actually, is watching a lot of the organizations who have played a leadership role take a step back because as they're having to take measures in a quick and crisis oriented way where they're not giving themselves enough pause to be thoughtful and intentional, I actually think we could see a massive problem in two to three months as we emerge. I agree. And I think both of us have to keep sounding the alarm on this is I think we're going to take 10 steps back for women and people of color. You know, I've been talking a lot about like the impact of remote education on poor girls, on underserved girls, and that before we get so excited about the technological revolution and digital excitement about blah, 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 we have to say, wait, how do I build something that's inclusive? Like if I can build something for a girl who doesn't have Wi-Fi that right now is getting Wi-Fi and learning in the parking lot in Burger King, if I can solve for her, I can solve for anybody. And I think almost like equity is being left behind and we need more voices on this. I mean, I think last week there were 20 articles about the impact of wages right on women and essential workers. And so I'm glad that like, you know, folks like Sheryl Sandberg and Melinda Gates are standing on that, but we all need to. I'm with you and we're going to be louder. I think we really do need to encourage the leaders and including those, you know, incredible white male allies that have the opportunity to rise and shine in this moment to demonstrate what bold leadership can look like in the recovery of a pandemic to actually go more out of our way to ensure that we have equity-based solutions as we rebuild because it's going to take a ton of intentionality. It struck me in talking to Reshma how so many of us get so stuck in our own perfectionism habits that often we might have an idea or want to try something new, but we get so worried that we won't be able to do it perfectly that we don't even take the first step. I was inspired hearing Reshma's story of having a bold vision inside of herself that she wanted to help girls. She created a small program and just went for it, knowing that she just had to be brave. It didn't have to be perfect. When you talk about the reflection that we're having the opportunity to do during COVID, it really means a lot to me. And I'm deeply fascinated by how we can find courage in the most 
difficult of circumstances and how even during these moments of great fear and uncertainty and for pain for so many people, there really is this opportunity. I listened to your recent Brave Not Perfect episode in conversation with Dr. Tarika Barrett on how you're navigating COVID-19. I admired so deeply how you're supporting your girls. And we need to think more deeply about how we create equitable access to education for all girls in the future. And we really have that opportunity now. Before we go into how you're personally managing and what you're reflecting on at home, I'd love to ask you, what is the greatest change that you've made at Girls Who Code? And how are you responding to this crisis? Basically, the way that our program is run is we run about 80 summer programs inside technology companies for seven weeks. And then we have 10,000 Girls Who Code clubs in schools. And then we have several hundred college loops on college campuses. So basically, in less than a week, everything we did was shut down. Schools were closed. Companies were closed. Colleges were closed. And we had hundreds of thousands of our students just there. And we didn't know when it was going to end. And I think one of the benefits of me being on maternity leave is I was watching the TV a lot, right? My mind was what you could call clear. And I was like, whoa, this is not going to be a weak thing. And for so long, we had built, I would say, not a contingency plan, but knew was a severe risk was that 90% of our funding came from corporates. So if there was an economic recession, we were going to see our money, you know, slice in half in a nanosecond. And so we had to just move very quickly and I had to make decisions very quickly. One, to protect kind of the health and safety of my team. Before the city did, said, nobody come into the office anymore. Like everybody stay home. And then I think it was also very quickly, like we need to get some sort of digital coding curriculum out there. And so we very quickly built Girls Who Code at Home. I think we were, again, one of the first organizations to start building, quote, at home curriculum. And then very shortly thereafter, you know, Tariqa was like, we got to build a virtual summer program. For a second, I had actually resisted it because I was like, hmm, like, is it going to be the same? And I kept thinking about a lot of our girls that didn't have an environment where they could, you know, learn remotely. But, you know, we said, you know what, let's rise to this challenge and let's build something that can. And it became then clear to me that like, wow, maybe this is an opportunity because if I was always stuck in doing a program in Chicago or in Seattle and I couldn't reach girls in Tanzania or Uganda or in Flint, Michigan, because I didn't have a program there, then I was actually limiting my reach. And so we're kind of full steam ahead and building what a virtual experience looks like but one that is immersive, right? And one that still has a teacher and builds sisterhood and builds bravery and you hear from amazing women. And so I am very proud of kind of what we're building. Now we had to part ways, you know, with some members of our family, which was the most painful thing I've ever in my life had to do. And if I was honest, Jody, I really am angry because it's not fair. Because it often feels like we're the ones, excuse my language, who get fucked. And it's like our girls get fucked. And like rich people are getting richer. And people who need services and people who are trying to provide those services are barely hanging on. And I'm angry about that. 
I've actually, you know, really been working through a lot of that similar anger and sort of very deep grief. I mean, as you know, you know, with Move the Dial, I similar to you, and it was just so amazing to hear how you handled it. Immediately when we saw it was happening, we sent everybody home. We then spent two weeks working to pivot all of our programs to virtual, even though we knew the magic was really about coming together in person. Could we create magical experiences that amaze and delight online? And we could. The challenge was for us that we were building a model that was going to be more sustainable than a sponsorship and partnership model for next year in 2021 with our technology mentoring platform that was, you know, two months away from MVP, but still 12 months away from being able to monetize. And our, you know, projected 4 million of revenue for this year went to zero in a nanosecond, right? When there's no more events and all the partners are in recession. And it's like, it's so unfair, right? There's a, there's a part of me where it's like, it feels so unfair. And that I love that you articulated the anger because I've been feeling it. So thank you for that. We all have the opportunity to sort of take that feeling of anger and sort of have a moment for ourselves saying like, this sucks. And then we pick ourselves up. And that's really, I think the courage and the the resiliency that you've shown to really pivot. I know that before I had to let my team go, which similarly was the most difficult moment of my life. It was awful and I'm still recovering from it. How are you leading your team? and filling their buckets and enabling their mental health and groundedness through this when I can only imagine it's so difficult for you as well. Do you have any thoughts or tips on that? Yeah, I think that different people on my leadership team play different roles. So I think for me, when I had to make that decision and I had to speak to the people who are going to be affected, I spoke to them and I cried and you know, it was one of the worst days of my life. But I think the thing is, when you're a leader, you don't get to grieve for too long, right? And I immediately have to pivot to innovation and for survival. But I also have to have empathy that like a lot of the folks that remain, you know, the vast majority of staff that remains is not there with me yet, right? And they still have survival built. They're still nervous and anxious. So one, I had to take some steps to make them feel like, okay, you're going to be fine. And two, I need to let them kind of sit with that grief. And that doesn't mean that I can't go be innovative because I think one of the things that the senior leaders of my team were struggling with was that almost also feeling guilty about being innovative, right? And thinking about what the future looked like because we had lost our family members. And so I think we're in the thick of this right now, to be honest. Um, I think empathy and authenticity is important. And I was definitely one of those leaders who were like, don't ever cry in the office. Like women should not cry. And I think this moment is different and I think it's okay. The second thing is, is that I do think that I am grateful for my bravery muscle and my resilience muscle, because again, I do feel like we, you, other women's organizations, other girls' organizations got screwed in this moment. And I am not going down like that. And all of these years, all of this personal sacrifices, I mean, I had more miscarriages than I can count. I've done more IVFs than I can count in the middle, right, of like building this and that pain, that personal sacrifice, all the hundreds of thousands of teachers that have worked for Girls Who Code, none of that is going to be in vain. Like, I'm not going to go back to where we were five years ago and then rebuild again. Like, when we come out of this, we're going to have to figure out how do you make sure that all of the gains that we've made for women and girls, you know, that we don't go back. I'm not going back. 
you know, I would like to reflect deeply on that. And we will come back and do a part two because I describe it as climbing a mountain. And I don't know about you. I wouldn't be surprised if you similarly spent a lot of time thinking about it. When I was young, I I read tons of books and watched every film I could on climbing Everest. Not that I ever would. (laughs) I'm kind of afraid of heights, but I'm obsessed with how do people train themselves, get in the mindset to go up a mountain. And I felt with, you know, my own sort of pause of operations that it's like, I'm at the second or third summit, but we have so much further to go. And the thought of rebuilding from scratch or going back down to base camp was so overwhelming. So you're inspiring me to be reinvigorated. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And if you're anything like me, I actually don't like the empathy. Like when people are like, oh, I'm sorry. I know it's rough. Are you okay? Like, I'm actually like, no, I'm fine. I think it's hard for us as women. And I've been reflecting on like, why do I feel that way? Because it feels personal. It feels like I personally failed. Yeah. And standing with you, I can say the degree of self-love I've had to bring to myself over not seeing you know, a need to pause the movement that I was building because it was primarily based on a revenue model that relied on events, live events, because that was the basis of how we brought people together as a personal failure. Like it's been a, a remarkably difficult time and trying to parent and homeschool and you know, manage and support my employees through their pain and help them find opportunities and, you know, all the cooking and cleaning and all the things at the same time as processing the grief, but trying to keep coming back to like, it is actually not a failure. It's an opportunity. And certainly, you know, moments like this and sharing them with you and thinking deeply around the opportunity to rise and what that looks like is so invigorating and inspiring and sort of reminds me of my daughter and I talk all the time about lemons and lemonade. I got divorced when she was three and we always talk when she's having hard moments around how painful it is not to have one nuclear family that there certainly are lemons. We can allow ourselves time and space to grieve the lemons, to feel them. But at a certain moment, we have to put on our big girl pants and pick ourselves up and see the lemonade in all of the opportunity that she has now. I'd love to go into your own personal sort of reflection in this moment. And what is the lemonade you are seeing? And how are you creating space to even do that reflecting? I think a lot of people are starving for ideas around how to do that. The question I keep asking myself is who I want to be when I get out of this. And what I don't want to happen is I was so full of anxiety. I was exhausted that this ends and I actually didn't get to grow. And so I just made myself ask that question every five minutes of who do I want to be when I get out of this? And have tried to build, I think a lot of people have talked about this, kind of routines to keep my self-care front and center. So like every morning I work out. The quietest time in my house is in the morning. I run twice a week. I do Pilates once a week. I do this thing called fitting room twice a week. I do my virtual like session with my personal trainer, but I move in the morning. And then I have a little bit of quiet time with like my baby. And one of the things that this experience has really helped me with is patience. And I see that with my five-year-old, like my five-year-old just is like loves to dance and be silly in the morning when he's brushing his teeth and getting ready. And Normally when I was hustling and bustling to like a flight or a speech or a meeting or this or that, I'd get really annoyed. But now like I kind of build that time into my schedule. We don't get mad at each other, right? Routines I think are huge. And I think again, like letting yourself kind of sit with frustration, like often the way that I've done this is with my kids. So like, you know, those endless YouTube videos on how to build like origami, like ninja shields or whatever I'm doing. Again, I'm I'm making myself kind of do it and sit with it. 
what I'd like to do is one of the things that I realize that I'm missing is I do feel like I'm proud of the way that I'm showing up as a leader. I feel like as an organization, we're going to be stronger when we get out of this. I think as a mom, I do feel like one of the things that I haven't answered or figured out yet, I'm missing fun. I'm missing a conversation with a girlfriend. I miss getting dressed and feeling free. And I think I haven't found a course or a Zoom call or a session or a whatever, you know, to help scratch that itch. Now we're going to get into our audience questions. Reshma, I am so excited to ask you a few questions from our Joyful Sundays community. Where do you see yourself in 10 or 15 years? In 10 or 15 years, I see myself as helping solve the gender gap and continuing to build a bravery movement. Who is someone you admire most? Hillary Clinton. I've been thinking a lot about her in this moment, and she has taught me so much about resiliency. And talk about someone who's constantly reinvented and been pushed down and get back up and pushed down and get back up. You know, we often don't have a lot of stories of women who have, you've seen that journey. And so she's on my mind a lot. It's a remarkable, remarkable, inspiring example. These are questions crowdsourced by my community. So what is your favorite restaurant? The first thing that popped in my head is uh, Le'Veon Bakery. Delicious. I have to try that next time I come visit in New York. And the last but not least, what is the most important lesson if you could only teach one to your own two children? What would that be? To be brave, not perfect. Thank you for listening to Joyful Sundays the podcast where I have truly inspiring conversations about how to become your best self. If you like this episode, support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and a comment. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. See you next time on Joyful Sundays.